This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Today is Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. On this day in 1979, Five protesters were murdered by members of the American Nazi Party and the Ku Klux Klan during an anti-Klan rally. The event became known as the Greensboro Massacre. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a Spotify original from Parcast. Today we're covering the Greensboro Massacre, in 1979, the Communist Workers' Party organized an anti-Klan rally in Greensboro, North Carolina. The event had hardly begun when members of the KKK and the American Nazi Party violently attacked the protesters. Let's go back to Greensboro, North Carolina on the morning of November 3rd, 1979. Jim Waller and Signe Waller were excited. Both had become politically active with the Communist Workers' Party, then named Workers' Viewpoint Organization, and were determined to organize against labor exploitation and racial discrimination. Jim Waller was so dedicated to the labor cause that he gave up his medical practice to help organize workers. But more than anything, the Wallers were energized to show the local KKK and American Nazi Party chapters that they weren't afraid of them. For months, tensions between the Communist Workers' Party and the KKK and the American Nazi Party had been rising. Throughout the mid-1970s, CWP activists struggled to organize white laborers in North Carolina. They decided to shift their focus on organizing African-American workers instead, which infuriated white supremacists in the region. Throughout the summer of 1979, the KKK, neo-Nazis, and the CWP clashed. The CWP refused to let the KKK continue their racial discrimination, making the white supremacists angrier and angrier. The initial conflicts mostly just consisted of shouting and taunting, but it was only a matter of time before it escalated into violence. The day of November 3rd was an exciting one for many. The CWP scheduled a conference, and to commemorate it, a local pastor named Reverend Nelson Johnson helped organize a parade to take place immediately beforehand. Dubbed the Death to the Klan March, it was to start at the Morningside House Projects and end at Greensboro City Hall. To show how little they feared the white supremacists, the organizers wrote an open letter to the Klan, inviting them to attend. They called the Klan a bunch of two-bit cowards. For too long, the Klan had terrorized African Americans in the South. It was time to take the power back. 
Shortly before 11 that morning, the Wallers arrived at the march with their young son. Signe Waller was tasked with selling the organization's newspapers. When she saw local news reporters setting up their cameras, she even agreed to speak on camera about the importance of the rally. At the same time, Reverend Nelson Johnson looked around for the police to discuss the parade's permits and route, but none could be found. Johnson found it odd that the police hadn't arrived yet, especially since the march was set to start in less than an hour. At 11.23 a.m., the rally organizers were fashioning a sound truck with a loudspeaker when all of a sudden a caravan of 10 cars pulled up next to them. One man shouted, you asked for the Klan, now you got them. And with that, roughly 30 white men poured out of their vehicles with shotguns, rifles, and pistols. They rushed up to the protesters and opened fire. Signe Waller grabbed her son and ran for her life. Reverend Johnson managed to fend off a neo-Nazi wielding a butcher knife. Meanwhile, a few communist protesters were armed with pistols and fired back at the white supremacists. For 88 seconds, the streets of Greensboro were consumed with bloodshed, all of it captured by the local news organizations who were there to report on the march. After less than two minutes of fighting, the Klansmen and Nazis got back into their cars and drove off. When the smoke finally cleared, five protesters, including Jim Waller, were dead. Ten others were injured. Only one of the wounded was a Klansman. People rushed to help the fallen, doing what they could to apply pressure to gunshot wounds and knife lacerations. Amidst the chaos, a single thought ran across everyone's mind. Where exactly were the police? Coming up, we'll explore the aftermath of the Greensboro Massacre. Listeners, here's a new show I can't wait for you to check out. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, seemingly meant to be. Others defy the odds to achieve happily ever after. In Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. 
On November 3, 1979, the Communist Workers' Party organized a march against the KKK in the lead-up to a party conference. But before they could begin their parade, a caravan of Klansmen and neo-Nazis arrived and opened fire on the protesters. By the time they left, five protesters were dead and 10 more people were injured. Meanwhile, the police were nowhere to be found. When authorities finally did arrive at the scene, they started arresting those trying to aid the injured. One of those detained was Reverend Nelson Johnson, one of the march's central organizers. At the time, he was bleeding from his arm after surviving the butcher knife attack. To many, it seemed as if the police were in on the attack. At the very least, they were aware the attack was happening and intentionally refused to show up. If the communist suspicions were raised in the immediate aftermath, they were confirmed in the years afterward. The FBI investigated the murders. Eventually, 14 men from the Klan and the American Nazi Party were arrested, and most were charged with first-degree murder and felony riot. However, they would be tried by the state of North Carolina. The prosecution had a mountain of evidence. Witness testimony, video footage from the local news crews that filmed the whole incident, and FBI ballistics reports. However, partly because some communists fired back at the Klansmen and Nazis, it was painted less as a massacre and more of an equal shootout. In November 1980, the Klansmen and Nazis were acquitted by an all-white jury. One of the defendants, Jerry Pridmore, proudly declared, anytime you defeat communism, it's a victory for America. But if the white supremacists thought they were entirely in the clear, they were wrong. In 1983, the federal government decided to go after the men. However, instead of murder, the feds used civil rights violations against them. But once again, the all-white jury found the men not guilty. In April 1984, the men were acquitted entirely. Even then, the victims and their families refused to let the matter go away. They filed a civil lawsuit against the Klansmen and neo-Nazis, the city of Greensboro, the state of North Carolina, and the FBI. After years of suspicions, the victims were more than convinced that law enforcement played a role in the massacre. And they weren't wrong. As it turned out, law enforcement had not one, but two lines of information leading up to the massacre. One was an informant for the Greensboro Police Department. The other was an undercover agent with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, or ATF. Eddie Dawson started ratting on the Klan in 1969. He went to prison for shooting a gun in a black neighborhood and blamed the KKK for getting locked away. So when he was approached by the FBI to inform on the KKK, Dawson willingly agreed. But the relationship didn't last very long. Ten years later, as tensions between the communists and the white supremacists were heating up, Dawson was approached again by Greensboro PD. 
This time, the detective didn't want Dawson to inform on the KKK, but to disrupt communist meetings. Dawson figured he could do both. On November 3rd, the morning of the Death to the Klan march, Dawson informed the Greensboro police that there was a caravan of Klansmen coming to the rally. They were heavily armed and bent on killing. But the Greensboro police refused to show up. In their eyes, the communists were the real agitators. And just after 11.23 a.m., five protesters were dead because of their inaction. The ATF also had an undercover agent embedded with the neo-Nazis. Back in 1980, it was public knowledge that Agent Bernard Butkovich had infiltrated the American Nazi Party. However, he testified that he had no prior knowledge that the Nazis planned on violence against the communists in 1979. But in the 1985 civil suit, Butkovich, now a defendant, changed his testimony. He not only was aware that the Nazis and the Klansmen intended to shoot at the communists, but he purposely decided to stay away from the area on November 3rd. His actions contributed to the deaths of five people in the streets of Greensboro. In June 1985, the Greensboro massacre victims won their civil suit, sort of. The jury found eight of the 87 defendants guilty, including Eddie Dawson and the Greensboro detective Dawson warned. However, in a twist, the jury only awarded money to the widow of Michael Nathan. Nathan was one of the five victims and, it turned out, was not a member of the Communist Workers' Party when the shooting occurred. Instead of $48 million, Nathan's widow received $351,000. She split it with the other families. In 2004, an independent commission formed to finally get at the truth behind the 1979 Greensboro Massacre. For two years, the Greensboro Truth and Reconciliation Commission investigated the events of November 3rd. They interviewed roughly 200 people, including former communists, Klansmen, and neo-Nazis. And in May 2006, they released their report, now considered the definitive account of what happened. Both the white supremacists and the communists shared blame for the massacre, Many of the communist protesters weren't from Greensboro, and it's widely accepted that they provoked the white supremacists into acting. However, it did find that the Klansmen and neo-Nazis intended to come to the march with the sole purpose of shedding blood. They weren't just there to agitate communists, but to kill them. The most damaging part of the report was directed toward the police. The Greensboro police not only knew that the white supremacists were coming to kill, but made no efforts to stop them. They purposely moved officers away from the parade route and didn't even bother attempting to prevent them from fleeing. Because of their lack of desire to act, Jim Waller, Cesar Cause, William Evan Sampson, Sandra Neely Smith and Michael Nathan are dead.
Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.